Turn that light up there. Just love meditation. Every time I do it, I, I go, like, oh yeah. Should do this more often. <laughs> a couple times a day. So I was thinking, I was going through a series of talks in my mind <clears throat> and in my computer. And I was uh, landed on a particular one that I was inspired. I've been working with for a while, but I was inspired to to write. Um, writing Dharma talks is interesting because I'm the type of person that I feel like I have to have. There has to be some kind of inspiration that then sparks the interest. To like look into it and sometimes nothing sometimes it's just I don't want to write anything I don't want to look a little deeper into the intellectual side of things but uh, a few years ago I was at a monastery in Thailand and there was this uh, monk that I would go on alms rounds with and we would have to walk a long way on this like dirt path and he was a talker he was from New Jersey. I think his name was Ajahn Damo. <coughs> Damo, 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 yeah, I think so. And um, I told him what I did as far as working with school in schools and whatnot, and he was like, ethics. You should teach them ethics. That's what America needs. That's what the West needs. They need to understand Buddhist ethics. So I was like, yeah, I could get with I, I understand that. But how? Right. And then, uh, some time ago, I was uh, at a retreat with Guy Armstrong, and he was talking about um, the splinter of suffering that is in each human mind, and how he wished that he had a particular tweezer to pull out the splinter of, of suffering from everyone that he meets, especially during interviews and during retreats as he's doing interviews. And those two uh, those two uh, moments or those two kind of teachings for me kind of inspired this talk. And I call the talk, uh, it just came up with the title, Healing the Wounds of the Mind. And um, it's about ethics. It's about the eightfold path. Because the Buddha gave us the tools. He said, there's the there's the splinter. You can identify it. And then here's the tweezer and the peroxide and the cotton swabs. So do it. But oftentimes we don't. For many reasons. So the Buddha's path 
consisted not only of mindfulness, concentration, and insight practices, but also of virtue or ethics. Beginning with the five precepts. The five precepts is probably the most user-friendly for us uh, lay people, householders, non-monastics. In fact, the precepts constitute this first, the first step in the path. There's some controversy about that, but from uh, Ajahn Damo's or uh, Bhikkhu Damo's perspective, uh, it was what we really needed to be looking at. And I agree. Uh, I feel like if we can learn to live in an ethical way, this meditation practice becomes much easier. That there tends to be in, in the West a way to kind of dismiss the precepts as like Sunday school rules bound by old cultures or norms that kind of no longer apply. We're in this new age. We don't really need these kind of commandments or uh, rules. You know, I think of rules. When I first heard them, they very much sounded like rules to me. But that's that's not the role that the Buddha intended for them. They're not rules. That's why they're not called rules or commandments. They're called precepts or agreements sometimes. And so I, you know, I kind of believe, and I, I, I actually believe that the, the Buddha really put it out this way, that they're a form of therapy. They're a, a course of therapy for the wounded mind. In particular, uh, they are aimed at curing two ailments that underlie low self-esteem, or maybe low self-worth, some would say. Regret and denial. So when our actions don't measure up to a certain standard of behavior set out by the precepts, uh, that we often you know, regret the action. Or we engage in one of two kinds of denial. Either kind of denying that our actions did in fact happen. Right? What uh, in addiction recovery they call simple denial. I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Or that, or that our actions caused any real harm. Or they deny the, we, deny the standard of which the actions are measured. Kind of like putting it up against uh, another's moralistic view. These are possibilities. So these reactions are like wounds in the mind. These kind of splinters that we cause ourselves. So regret is like an open wound, tender to the touch. Had an experience of this not too long ago, actually. Of regretting a particular action and then really having to sit with that and sit with the repercussions, the karmic repercussions, even. So while denial is like hardened, twisted scar tissue around a tender spot, and I like to think of these kind of obviously. You know, metaphors for what uh, the ways in which 
regret or denial can kind of work in our lives. So when the mind is wounded in these ways, you know, it can't settle down comfortably in the present. For it finds itself resting on raw, exposed flesh or calcified knot. And anyone that's kind of sat longer retreats, especially for me, my first few retreats, I wasn't actually living in a very ethical way. I just thought meditation would be good. And uh, came head on with some of these wounds. There was a particular uh, longer retreat I sat in Thailand where uh, I was at this monastery and it was like a progressive 24-day 20, retreat. I don't know why it was 24 days, but it was like this progressive, you'd have to sit more and sit more and sit more every day and change the like a body-centered practice. And I was so afflicted with all of these kind of past actions. Uh, regret. Mostly regret. Regret, remorse. Didn't have much denial about it. I had come to a that's the other thing, right? Is that this meditation practice will reveal, you know, that which is true. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So even when the mind is kind of forced to stay in the present moment, it's there only in a kind of tense and contorted or partial way. And so the insights that it gains tend to be contorted and partial as well. And the good thing is that if we continue to practice, that we can begin to kind of loosen up the scar tissue and heal the wounds by addressing them, just like we would any other wound or any other scar. Only if the mind is free of wounds and scars can it be expected to settle down comfortably and freely in the present and to give rise to the undistorted uh, discernment? Okay, so how did the Buddha say we should do this? He was pretty clear. He gave us the Eightfold Path. The prescription. For all of our splinters, wounds, nicks, ailments of the mind. And so, I mean, mainly though, the, the right speech, right action, and right livelihood as a way to live ethically in the world to kind of prepare ourselves, to, uh, as, as it's said in the, in the Buddha's teachings, to live blamelessly so that we can uh, really, you know, tap into our own awakened potential, really look at. So it's like clearing the path of brambles, obstacles, whatever. So right speech, abstinence from false speech, slander, harsh speech, or useless words the way it's described. It can be difficult. Always room for improvement, in my opinion, in my, in my world. 
right action. Abstinence from killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Now you'd think these are these are kind of no-brainers, right? Yeah, of course. Kill, steal. We don't act harmfully with our sexual energy. But still, they can pose challenges. I have a, a slight bug infestation in my uh, new uh, my new digs, and uh, it's been interesting being friendly with spiders. I like spiders; they're not a big deal. And I got these little bugs that keep dropping from the they're like in the sink and in my shaving kit and. Uh, We're learning to get along. And then write livelihood. Avoiding any means of livelihood that involves harm or exploitation of others. That can be challenging. So this is where the five precepts come in. They are are designed to heal these wounds and scars. Healthy self-esteem comes from living up to a set of standards that are particular, that are clear-cut. That's pretty clear-cut. Humane and worthy of respect. This is what I believe that um, this monk in Thailand was really talking to me about. Like how the Buddha's prescription is humane and clear cut. So the English word kind of morality or uh, uh, virtue, um, I think that, I mean, because that's originally the way that I, I understood the, the precepts. There, there were the more, like sila, the word sila uh, meant kind of morality. And I think that we get that twisted. It's kind of like, it means kind of like obligation or constraint. And it's actually not the Buddhist concept of sila at all. The the Buddhist uh, concept of sila is kind of, well, Buddhism itself has a non-theistic framework. And it's, the the grounds is in ethics, right? Not, uh, is not a notion of obedience, but one of harmony. So we're learning to be harmonious with ourselves and with others. That's kind of what I believe the Buddha was was intending by setting these precepts. So in the in the commentaries, uh, often explain the word sila to mean uh, to mean just that harmony or uh, coordination. That the observance of uh, sila leads to harmony at several levels. Social, psychological, karmic, and contemplative. As I've been working and continue to work with the precepts, this has been true for me. On some level, more is revealed. So at the social level, these, these principles of sila... They help to establish harmonious interpersonal relationships. Again, kind of a no-brainer. We're not harming people. 
we're not lying or stealing, we're probably going to get along with people okay. We may not like them, but we're going to get along with them. <laughs> Personality is a whole other level. Characteristic tra- character traits are a whole other deal. So on a psychological level, Sila brings harmony to the mind, right? Protection from the inner split caused by guilt and remorse or denial. This is the area I found to be most helpful and most telling when I've not acted in accordance with the precepts. And I, you know, I first, when I first, like I said, when I first heard the precepts, I really heard them as kind of commandments like you had to be this way. But really, further investigation, I've kind of come to understand them as they're an ideal that that we can really strive to live to live up to, and that when we fall short of that ideal, uh, then we need to be aware of that. And if you're falling short of your ideal, whatever your your ideal is, all you have to do is really sit, and it comes to life. That's that's my uh, been my experience. So at a karmic level, the observance of sila it ensures harmony with the kind of cosmic law of karma. Hence, favorable results in the course of our kind of future movement through this round of repeated birth and death. So the understanding of how karmic momentum really kind of leads us into the next moment or even the next, as you could say, life or lives of birth and death. And this can be a literal sense of when this body dies and then rebirth into another body or another life. Or it can be uh, from moment to moment, the idea of each moment we're reborn into each new moment. It's kind of, this is consistent with kind of wise view that really the idea of self is an illusion and that we're actually constantly in flux. The mind is in flux. All we have to do is try to watch the thoughts, watch the breath, watch the sun, watch the body change. This is kind of consistent with the wise view. Also part of the Eightfold Path. So, and at the fourth level, the contemplative level, Sila helps, you know, establish a kind of calm and ease in the mind so that we can begin to uh, it's kind of like the way I actually envision the way like a flower blooms we can kind of begin to bloom into our own uh, wisdom once we're able to kind of settle this is where I think uh, you know meditation retreats or long-term kind of practice is helpful. As I'm sure other people who have uh, sat retreat can attest to. Giving the time to kind of allow some of that stuff to work through, to be aware, see it, allow it to pass. And 
you know, I, I sat at a Goenka retreat, SN Goenka retreat some time ago, and they have a, a, a bit of a different view in kind of seeing this word sankara as being kind of like karmic uh, holdings that get locked in our kind of physical or psychic self. And that through this practice, practice, we begin to kind of uh, allow them by looking at them, by seeing when they arise, and then allowing them to pass. But until we are able to do that, they're, they're splinters. They're still locked within us. Psychologically, physically, I don't think it matters. So then that's kind of the first section. Uh, it's actually the last section in the list, but I put it first because I feel like uh, as we're entering into practice, um, and actually the way the Buddha taught, he taught about generosity, and then he taught about ethical living, and then he taught about med- meditative uh, bhavana, meditative practices. And he felt like this was the proper way to actually enter in and we kind of get it twisted here where we start meditating like I learned how to meditate when I was I don't know 15 or 16 and I didn't have any idea about any anything Buddhist I didn't even know I just thought the Buddha was a, a big jolly happy fat guy that you see at a Chinese restaurant you know? <laughs> oh that's the Buddha come to find out no that's just a, some other representation So anyway, I feel like it's important if we can live each day, even if we're not meditating every day, if we can live each day touching into the precepts, uh, I feel like that alone can uh, help us so much, this ethical living. And then, of course, the fruits is being able to sit in a mind that can rest in awareness not be so conflicted tormented right the word kilesas right means torment of mind otherwise known as greed hatred and ignorance I always I've loved that since I found that out torment of mind because that's it's definitely what I experienced you know I remember one of my first retreats um it was like a three-day retreat. And it felt like I was uh, in a war in my mind. Like I was like, had this all these kind of like Vietnam jungle scenarios in my mind. It was just really, really difficult. And I remember uh, Mary Grace actually was like tormented. And Mary Grace... I was wanted to leave and I remember Mary Grace saying well you know did did you or I was like when is this going to end and she said well did you stop meditating did you get up I said no she said well then you're doing great this is what we have to do work through that was really helpful didn't get much better but <laughs> I at least knew I could get through so the next kind of level of uh on the list, right down the list, right concentration, otherwise known as samadhi. 
So this has uh, three aspects to it. Right, effort. Right, training the mind to avoid unwholesome mental states and to develop wholesome mental states. This is done through practice and discernment. So by doing this practice, right, we're learning. This is, in essence, kind of what Vipassana is. And, you know, I, I um, learned recently, reading through uh, some of Bhikkhu Bodhi's work, that the Buddha had talked about prior to his enlightenment, he began to uh, be able to discern between the themes of his mind that were wholesome and the themes of his mind that were unwholesome and began to be able to discern them and give energy towards that which is wholesome, that which leads to the end of suffering. And that, I believe that that's actually what he's talking about here. When he's talking about right effort. So the next is right mindfulness, right? Developing the power of attentiveness and, and awareness in regard to the four foundations of mindfulness. This is kind of the, the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of the practice, right? This is what we do. Bringing our attention to the body and the breath, to the feeling tone, to the mind itself, seeing the thoughts and the feelings and the fantasies and the stories and then to the mental phenomena right just kind of the well really it's often all of that and the last aspect often is talked about as uh, the dharma right then beginning to contemplate the uh, the four noble truths and the eightfold path and three characteristics of existence and all the kind of teachings There's another whole view about that, that if you just follow the breath, awareness of the breath in the body, all of that will just be revealed. Also known as Anapanasati. Just sticking with the mindfulness of the in and out breath and all will be revealed. Of course it's helpful to hear the Dharma. So and then uh, right concentration, cultivation of one-pointed awareness or uh, one-pointedness of mind. So this is the ability to come back again and again. Which kind of this is all. See, I don't, I don't, I don't see them as they're like singular. Like you do this and this and this. They're not steps. I see it. With, I love the way it's called the eightfold path because they really are. They're all just folding together. I see it as uh, strands of rope that one is thin and flimsy and can't hold much, but together there's strength. And I kind of believe this is true for myself. So the last group, wisdom, the wisdom group, Ponya. Right? Understanding. Knowledge of the true nature of life. Understanding the Four Noble Truths. The other kind of, but mainly the vulnerable truths. Like if we can just get that, the Buddha's first teaching. He was so. Uh, this is my interpretation, of course. He's so tentative about whether or not we would even get it that he, but he wanted to just 
He wanted to put it all in one big package and just hand it to the people that he thought were the most likely his uh, his ascetic friends that he left to go find the middle way. He was like, hmm, thinking back, he was like, well, they're probably the closest. So if I could package it in such a way. So he, his first teaching, and all of his teachings essentially, were in the Four Noble Truths. So then the last uh, of, of this list, and the last of the wisdom group, is right thought. Thought free from desire, craving, ill will, and aggression. So if we can develop this resting place, resting in awareness, free from desire, craving, desirous craving, sensual craving they call it, the kind of wanting um, I don't know, it's been called, I read it differently, it's different in every sensuality, but it's also known as uh, the kind of craving for existence to be a solid self. If I can just keep uh, desiring to be a solid self. So the freedom from that. Obviously ill will, aggression, aversion, anger, Hatred kind of gets in the way of the meditation. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. <laughs> I sure have. So, I didn't have a really good way to ending. I was try, trying to find, okay, how do, I, how do I summarize this? How do I end this? And then I didn't, haven't gotten to the ending of this talk yet. So I'll have to keep working on it. But I think it's something like, okay, now let's do it. Like every day. Can we live in a way that is non-harming? And when we fall short of that ideal, can we bring a skillful awareness to where maybe we've fallen short because we're not enlightened? And then learn from that through discernment. Because, God, that judge is so insidious, right? So, yeah, that's about all I have for tonight. So, thanks. And let's, yeah, we'll open up for some, a couple questions. Then there's some announcements. Any questions? Shall we? I'll leave that. Anything you didn't understand? It's unclear. I'm sure it's my fault if it's unclear. Generally not the Buddha's. He was pretty clear. <laughs> I just have a comment. Please. What was the phrase for the um, was the sliver of suffering or splinter? Splinter. It was very synchronistic because in a very short little synopsis here, I had been out of, out of the country. I was on this trip. I was riding this horse. I got jammed up against this tree, and this thorn dug mm. really deep into my knee. Mm. And I got to a point where I could pull it out, and it was just long, you know, pretty pretty mm. long. 
But the whole site just kept being kind of inflamed. And I'm constantly kind of picking at it and soaking it in peroxide and all those things you were saying. Mm-hmm. And my sister was, you know, quit doing that, just leave it alone. I was like, <laughs> And so I was thinking about, you know, what we do in our mind and when is it skillful and when isn't it skillful yeah. to kind of keep pulling. Mm-hmm. But, um, so then, so I was back maybe a week ago and I'm still doing my little, you know, thing with this, why isn't this getting better? And the other night I was just kind of just, it again, and this two inch another piece came out of nowhere. Mm. Like it was not anything, you know, sometimes you can see it under the skin. And it was just when you were talking about that, it was so real for me because mm. I'd been with this process mm-hmm. <laughs> in this very physical way, and that it was invisible, but there was enough irritant there for me to want to keep moving towards mm-hmm. it. But when was it, you know? with a little bit too much mm-hmm. uh, agenda, but also that I think in some ways it helped it to eventually find its way through. So anyway, that's just my um, amusement. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's okay. <laughs> I think that that's a, a really perfect analogy for, I mean, I know in myself the, that when I um, break a precept, and for me the, the, the hardest one is right speech, uh, that, you know, like it's, it's often if I say something unkind, and I will do so much to kind of cover it over in my mind that it wasn't really anything, or she deserved it or you know you, you, there's so many forms of denial but you still feel it in there festering mm-hmm. until you finally are willing to open it up and really look at it and do the real cleanup that's required mm-hmm. but you, you know it's there and it's it's poisoning you until you really open it but it festers it, it like a splinter does I uh, have this stray cat that's been hanging around in my yard and uh, after about a month of hanging around in my yard, he had a hurt paw. And so it got so bad, I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I started feeding the cat and putting antibiotics in <laughs> But it's really interesting to watch because, you know, anybody who's had cats knows how this this thing happens where the wound closes up and then they're in a lot of pain and then if it can open up then they're relieved and I, I just see that same analogy too mm-hmm. um, the denial part you're talking about like if we, if we if we don't work on it if we don't look at it or acknowledge it or then uh it's still there, <laughs> and it gets worse. <laughs> but um, when you start opening it up, there's some relief. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.